Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. If you have listened to me jabber on over the years, or if you have known me any length of time, you know that I absolutely love ancestry stuff. I must have caught the bug from my maternal my paternal grandfather. Back in the day, he had this massive brown book, double-spaced in courier font, that told the story of the McBrayer family from well-to-do beginnings in the Scottish lowlands to hard times in the Ulster plantations of Northern Ireland to struggling immigrants in pre-revolutionary war America and eventually found their way down the spine of the Appalachian Mountains to a valley in North Georgia where now nine of the 13 U.S.-born McBrayer generations are buried. Here's a gravestone of the one Samuel McBrayer buried outside of Asheville, North Carolina, likely born on a boat in 1733 between County Down, Northern Ireland, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it doesn't stop there. I want you to look at this thing. Slide two, if you would, Garrett. This is just the first page of a very lengthy document I'm working on these days about my family history. And there are a lot more names on there than just McBrayer. This is a wild and woolly family tree. And I wanted folks to see it that it is not a singular line. I am not as inbred as you thought I was. Bearden and Whitfield, my mother's family, and now Cooper, Green, and Jankowski, Cindy's family, and Braden's family, of course. Going back further, Sexton, Greeson, West, Quinn, Bailey, Mashburn, Buchanan, Mullins, Jim, dear Lord, we might be cousins. In my most recent explorations, here are a few more snapshots for you. You may have seen this one in the past. This is the Reverend John Martin McBrayer. Fiery mountain preacher and songster. This apple did not fall far from the tree, apparently. This is the Odom family. And the woman circled there is my great-grandmother, Granny, we called her. She lived till I was eight years old. This is the family of Millie Emmeline Couch Rogers, next. Someone that I had never heard of until this week, and they look like they might be preparing to rob a stagecoach. And one more, an amazing one. Now, I knew this woman's story. I've even written a song about this woman's story, but I had never seen this picture. This is the only picture that we have of a Sarah Jane Brown Wati Welch. What a name. My fourth great-grandmother. Sarah was a member of the Cherokee Nation, born in North Carolina, She was marked for expulsion and removal in the 1830s to be uprooted by the decree of President Andrew Jackson along with more than 60,000 of her tribe and forcefully sent west to Oklahoma. But she had fallen in love with a young Welchman 
a man named John Jackson Welch. They married as soon as she turned 18, and that marriage kept her safely rooted in the mountains of her homeland. Certainly, I would not be standing here today, I would not be alive today without that marriage and her escape from the Trail of Tears. Isn't that amazing? What we've been doing on Sunday mornings over this last month plus is a lot like piecing together a family tree, except the tree we are tracing is the cross. We have been looking at all the different ways the cross has been understood, all the different meanings it makes in our lives and to our family of faith. And we've considered a few of the ways the cross has been explained. Atonement theory is what the scholars call it. And we've contemplated these explanations as if they were a puzzle, a crossword puzzle looking for clues, a family picture album to which I've added today, and maybe it's a lot like the lineage of a family tree. It can help us understand and integrate the cross into our lives. For example, does the knowledge that I have a Cherokee ancestor change how I think and act in some ways? You bet it does. Does the fact that I have Ulster Scott Irish blood in my veins draw my attention and my concern to that part of the world? Of course it does. That my wife has all this Eastern European heritage give us a different perspective even as events in Eastern Europe unfold today? Yes, of course it does. That Cindy and I have adopted sons grafting in an entirely different limb to our family tree. That one of those sons is multiracial. That one of those sons is now married to a Mexican-Latina immigrant. These are the sorts of things that doesn't just change your family, they change you as a person. They change your perspective about the world in which you live. We all have family history that informs and directs us, and we all have the same relationship as people who follow Jesus with the cross. History, the greater Christian community, the greater Christian family, has pulled from the cross meaning that grounds us where we are now, and it gives us what we need to move forward. Here is the cross and family tree format. We go back to the event, and from there, four children have sprung from the trunk. Four primary understandings of what the cross was about, of what the cross accomplished, and how the death of Jesus did so. The firstborn understanding, the oldest, is the ransom theory. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is a picture of liberating grace, of setting captives free. Now this view had a child or two itself, but we can't get into that today, okay? A second understanding... Last week, we spent some time talking about this one, Christus Victor, quoting Irenaeus again, God came to earth that he might kill sin, deprive death of its power, and restore life to all humanity. That is the summary. Jesus has conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave. Those are both early views of the cross. There are two more. We turn to the third one today as we are taking them in birth order. The ransom theory emerges early on within a generation based on Jesus' own words. Christus Victor is right behind it. It is embraced as the primary understanding of Christianity for a millennium. And now this great third line of, of, of interpretation and application is called moral exemplar. 
I could have said example, but the Latin just sounded so cool, I had to say it that way. Moral influence is also a way that they talk about this. This is not one that we Protestants especially hear about a lot. It's sort of like that forgotten middle child who doesn't get the undivided attention of being firstborn or getting the rottenly spoiled attention of being the lastborn. But it's worthy all the same. In summary, moral exemplar goes something like this. The death of Jesus on the cross was such an act of loving sacrifice, such a far-reaching, sin-overcoming, world-transforming, relationship-changing event, that if just remotely understood, if a human being could just get a glance of it, just a smidgen of it in their hearts, then Jesus' example of all-encompassing love would so break our hearts open that the only response possible would be to love in return. That's the basics of what this argument is all about. All you need is love, said Paul and John, the Beatles. But Paul and John in the New Testament said the same thing. And the remainder of the New Testament says so. For God so loved the world that He gave, John said. We love because God first loved us, Paul said. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I am convinced that neither death or life, angels, demons, things present, future, powers, heights, depths, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It has been here all along. This loving theme of the cross. How have we failed to emphasize this view? Why is it that we haven't given this one, especially we Protestants, more attention? Well, first of all, winners get to write our history. Right? Losers don't get much of a voice in what really happened. The winners also get to write our theology. That there is, throughout history, and throughout theology, theological history, there is always the minority report. There is always this truth that is out there that the establishment as is did not want to accept, but good people Jesus-following people, Christian people, embraced it nonetheless as the truth that had come to them. So one reason we don't hear about this one is, well, can I tell you a story? This handsome guy right here, you can call him Pete, or Peter Abelard. He, in the Middle Ages, a thousand years ago, developed this idea of what I've just told you. That the true communication of the cross shouldn't be about ransom, shouldn't be necessarily about conquest, it should be about the love of God that breaks our hearts open to love in return. This was his idea. He wrote books about it. He lectured about it. His problem was in the process he made some very powerful people angry. And some very powerful people squashed his testimony. 
he drew to himself a massive following of students in Paris. So great were the crowds of students that the official university teachers grew jealous of him. Strike one. Then he began to rival other great theologians of his day, those over in Rome. Strike two. And then strike three. Peter fell in love. Heloise was her name. Heloise lived with her uncle, a high-ranking church official and a national politician. Oh, what? That happened back then too? She secretly married Abelard. And they kept it a secret. Until the pregnancy began to show. When her uncle found out that she had married secretly... When he found out that she was bearing his child, he so beat and humiliated her, called her a whore, told her that she had shamed his good reputation, literally locked her in the home. It's a great lover story. Abelard came in the middle of the night, broke her out of the home, whisked her away to the French countryside, and hid her in a convent where that child was born. Heloise's uncle grew so enraged, he turned his anger on Abelard. He sent a gang of thugs into Abelard's home in the middle of the night and castrated him in his bed. Now, if that's not bad enough, because boy, that will take the starch out of you pretty quick, I think. Then Heloise's uncle used his influence as a theologian himself and as a politician to have the Pope excommunicate him from the church. His books were gathered and burned. His lectures were destroyed. He was sent into the countryside himself to live literally as a prisoner for the remainder of his life. Although he and Heloise reunited in their old age and he lived long enough to see that child of theirs grow to adulthood. His last words on his dying deathbed, he never recovered physically, he never recovered emotionally. Nervous breakdown after nervous breakdown, he never recovered socially and emotionally and spiritually from the damage that the official church had done to him. The church did this. His last words on his deathbed were, I just don't know. But he did. He did know. He caught the insight that it had been lining the New Testament the entire time. He saw that without love being the central tenet of the cross, nothing about it will make sense. He saw that if love is not the energizing force of true spirituality and faith, then that spirituality and faith has no power in this world. He saw that if we are not moved and motivated by the love of God in Christ Jesus, then we will find lesser motivations and employ them and do the exact kind of damage done to Him that the church did in its day. And let me tell you, loudmouth or not on Twitter, that is still going on in the world today. Where we will silence voices that we disagree with. That we will push out of the church itself people that God loves and for whom Christ gave his life for because they don't fit, because they don't match, or because they don't line up orthodoxy-wise with us. The only orthodoxy is the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
That is what the world needs. That is what we all need. That is the only thing that has the power to change us or to change our world. And that brings us to a second reason why this view of the cross has been playing a minor role. And it is simply this. Love requires vulnerability. Love requires sacrifice. Love requires humility. Love requires service. Love requires that we give ourselves away with all that we have. We love to talk about the ransom theory because that's something God has done for us. We love to talk about Christus Victor because that's all about winning. That's all about sticking it to the people that have stuck it to us. But then we start talking about love and it doesn't look like winning a lot of time. It looks like losing. Because love always calls us to sacrifice. It calls us away from power. The cross was an act of ferocious, transformative love by Jesus and it calls us to follow that path. The earlier text that Anna read from Philippians 2, a favorite of mine, I think, that recently Garrett used it in his sermon. By the best analysis, the words that you heard from Philippians 2 are not the words of the Apostle Paul. They're the words of one of the first ancient hymns that the church sang. Possibly a liturgy that was used in the church. Paul is borrowing it and bringing it into his letter. So it is as primal and original as we can get. And what is it about? It's about a love that brings God from the highest place to the lowest place. It's about a love that stoops. Like that old gospel song so many of my ancestors loved. Once my soul was astray from the heavenly way, I was wretched and blind as could be. But my Savior in love gave peace from above when He reached down His hand for me. And He did more than lend a hand. He gave everything. This is a demonstration of what love looks like in action. You have to get down. You have to go low. You have to give up on all you think you deserve and what you think you are owed. You stop worrying about your reputation, being concerned with making a bigger name for yourself, trying to prove something. You stop thinking in terms of what other people are trying to take away from you or steal from you or cheat you out of. You stop clinging to your place at the front of the line. You stop acting like you're a king or a queen. You stop acting like God. At least any pagan God we hear about. Those are the ones that are always on the exalted throne. This God takes on the body of a human being and descends to the least of these and becomes the least of these. That's what the Christian God looks like. Driven by love. So I think if we see this, if we witness this, we experience this, it moves us. Can we look at the cross and for just a minute set aside some of the things we've been told, that that's God murdering His Son and all those other false images? Can we look at the cross and realize that it is some kind of demonstration of the love of God? If we can understand that, if we can accept that, if we catch just a glimpse of that, how would that change us? 
I, I just think it would feel all that cavernous emptiness that so many people feel in the world feels. I think it would reach those unreachable places in our minds and our hearts that itch and we can't quite scratch it. It would satisfy the longing of people and of nations and of tribes. It would fulfill the dreams of the kingdom of God itself. Just a glimpse of the love of God. It would simultaneously ground us while also empowering us to love others as we have been loved. It would free us to be our true selves in a world that doesn't have the slightest clue as to what that means. And that would be witness enough in and of itself. I return as I often do to a song. We did it today and we usually do it this way. We have that solo before the sermon, special music. Anybody ever call that in the churches you grew up in? Special music? Like the rest of it was unspecial. <laughs> and uh, before I found myself, you know, with this gig of leading the band and preaching, you know, sometimes they'd say, oh, so-and-so's doing the special music today. And you'd be like, oh, my God, please, Lord Jesus. And so if they're bad, you've got to preach double hard to get over it. So now, at least, I have only myself to blame, I guess, if, if, it, if it goes bad. Well, the song we did today is the special music, that great old hymn, The Love of God. And I have heard that song. I, I heard that song growing up hundreds of times. And here's why. And I, I may have shared about Marvin in the past. In the church of my formation years, we had this rotating group of soloists who would do that special music before the sermon. And Marvin was one of them. And Marvin was a man about the age of Moses. And about this tall. Sweet. And he wore the same gray pinstripe suit to church every Sunday. And when it was his rotation and his time to sing, he would get up there and he'd stand behind the pulpit and you'd, you'd see about this much of him. And he would sing this song. The love of God. And he told the story every time. And people would listen and hang on to it like we'd heard it the first time. This song was written in 1917 by an American songwriter. And lived in California and he was actually working loading fruit onto trucks. Thinking of the lyrics of this song and he wrote the first two lyrics of the song and he was stuck on the third verse. And you can't have a good Baptist hymn without three, at least three verses. And someone handed him a poem that had been discovered, true story, on the wall of an asylum. Of, of an asylum. So think about an insane asylum in the late 1800s. The depravity that those poor souls were put under. And this poem had been found etched into the stone of this wall. And Layman, the author of the Original song, took it, adapted it, and he placed it into his song. And I wish Marvin were alive today to hear the rest of the story. Because that poem is much older than the 1800s. It was penned by an 11th century poet and rabbi, Mayor of Rothenburg. Here's a slide. He is buried today 
in the oldest Jewish cemetery in Europe. A man persecuted and hunted and eventually imprisoned where he died by the same hateful authorities that had done their worst to Peter Abelard at the exact same time. This is his grave. And these are his words. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain that ocean dry. Nor could that scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels saw. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for listening.